the mic on? All right. Can you guys hear me very well? Yeah. Move this up just a little bit. Okay. So Matt is passing out a handout. I think we have plenty. It's a packed house in here, so I don't know if we put, I don't know if we print off enough. <laughs> so two years ago, if you were in Wagner at the Super Sabbath weekend on uh, the last day of unleavened bread, I, it was a morning session. I did the same seminar, and Steve uh, asked me to give that same one here today. So. Uh, I'm just going to kind of explain a little bit about what this seminar is. It's really not a Bible study. It's more like just kind of a information, things that I think is really important. Uh, but I just title it just kind of what it is, the facts about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, what it's really focused on, I mean, we've all, you know, everyone here believes in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, that's why you're here. Uh, and you probably read scriptures about Jesus fulfilling this prophecy or that prophecy, uh, demonstrating him to be the rightful Messiah. And that's really not what this seminar is about. This seminar is kind of taking a different approach. It's an, a, an important approach. It's taking what would be called a historical approach. So in other words, we're going to look at some historical facts. And I don't just say that like what I'm saying, historical facts, but like historically validated facts that even scholars, historians that don't even believe in Jesus will agree upon. In other words, like they will testify, yes, these are things that we know are true in regards to uh, this issue of Jesus and him dying and him being buried. Okay? So I have a few objectives for us today, uh, what I'm wanting to accomplish, and that is Three things, okay? Number one, understand why a working knowledge of these issues is important for Christians. I am going to try to convince you and show you that these things are important. Uh, and they're important for several reasons. And a lot of it has to do with being able to give an answer to people who might question why you believe what you believe. Also, we're going to briefly look over what's called the modern search for Jesus, and then lastly, we're going to review four facts about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So my goal overall uh, in this seminar is to provide you with some information that's important, especially living in 2018, in the 21st century, uh, where Christianity, uh, and in particular the resurrection and Jesus himself, have been attacked uh, by secularism, by humanism, and to provide you with some information that helps you if you ever do come into contact with people that might want to know, why do you believe in this Jesus? I mean, wasn't he just a man? I mean, how do you know that he rose from the dead? Uh, and give you some information that's more than just, well, he fulfilled these prophecies, which are very important. Don't get me wrong. Okay? Those things are very important. But when you're talking to someone that does not believe in the Bible, quoting the Old Testament is not going to get you very far. Does that make sense? Okay? And we need to be able to engage with anyone that has, you know, a question of why we have the faith that we have. And so I want to also give some uh, props to the sources that I use. I have uh, since amended a little bit of this, and I've actually got the second edition of that second source. But uh, Robert Stein, Jesus the Messiah, Survey of Life of, of Christ, uh, Walter Well, Robert Yarbrough, Encountering the New Testament, William Lane Craig. The last part right here, 
is this one? Is it this right here? This source is the, the second part of this seminar. It's pretty much adapted from this article right here. A guy by the name of William Lane Craig. And he is a Christian apologist philosopher that has been very, uh, very popular, very uh, prolific writer. Uh, he has had discussions with some of the biggest uh, skeptics when it comes to the New Testament. And um, I really encourage you to maybe check out some of the things that he has to offer if you're ever interested. And I'm going to give you that information here in just a little while. So what difference does it make? Okay, uh, Why do we need to know about the resurrection of Jesus and, and more than just believe in it? I mean, why is it important to have some information about, you know, to actually be able to stand up to someone and say, no, there actually is some historical facts that kind of back up the claim of what the Gospels say that Jesus did. Okay, The first reason is because Number one, we, we, we are not to have a blind faith. I mean, Christianity is not a religion where God just says, believe me, just believe me, just believe me, and I'm not going to give you anything uh, to validate why you should believe me. God offers us reasoning. He offers us reasons why we should believe in him. Okay, Faith in Jesus does not require a blind faith, but provides reasonable justification for that faith. So in other words... Jesus did the things he did, and there's a testimony of him doing those things. And that is why we believe in Jesus. Secondly, Christianity is based off of an event. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of Christianity. Okay? All of the Gospels is telling us about what Jesus did, what he said, but none of that comes to anything if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, okay? You've probably heard of C.S. Lewis's, you know, the three, the three L's, right? The, he's either a lunatic, and Jesus is either lunatic, liar, or, or Lord. I mean, it's one of those three things. So if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, then Christianity really has no foundation because that is the foundation. When the early church began, that was what they were being witnesses to. They were being witnesses to that particular event. That's what vindicates him to be the Christ, Okay? And then lastly, based off of, Christianity is based off a witness that makes it a, a which uh, is based off a system of witness, it is organically meant to be a faith rooted in reason. So in other words, it's not just believe Jesus, this guy that lived 2,000 years ago. It's a faith that's based upon reason because this individual rose from the dead. How many people do you know of rose from the dead in history? Not that many. Okay, And so this is what validates us to actually follow after Jesus. Okay, uh, Secondly, giving an answer to skeptics. And this is kind of what I went to in the very first part. This is, there's an evangelistic component to this. Okay, A rational justification for what we believe. All right, How can we expect people that we know, okay, whether they be friends, whether they be family, whether they be our children, how can we expect them... Uh, to believe what we teach them or what we tell them if we don't have reason behind why we believe what we believe. And of course, skeptics is especially. And this goes for like the 21st century. I mean, it's been around for years and years and years. And we're going to get into that. But the skepticism uh, on Christianity today is probably at an all-time high. And there's other reasons for that than just people being very secular-minded or being very 
scientifically minded. There's also the, you know, there's some of that's because of hypocrisy that people have seen within Christianity. And I'm talking about Christianity worldwide. Uh, some of that has been just because other influences. But anyways, more and more, especially among younger people, there is skepticism when it comes to the religion of Christianity. Okay? So let's look at the modern search for Jesus. Like, how did this all begin? Uh, it's been a few hundred years, plus a few hundred years, that uh, the Bible has been uh, criticized. And I don't mean that like criticized like it's a bad book, but criticized in a scholarly way, so to speak. In other words, where historians have come in and say, let's use the same historical methods that we would use to analyze works of Plato or works of Socrates or uh, some other historical figure. Let's apply those same practices and principles to the Bible. So before the 18th century, and this is just an example, I'm going to get into why 1996 is kind of an important date. Uh, not necessarily that date, but mid-90s, there's a movement that kind of began that kind of made some of this skepticism uh, when it comes to Jesus and what he actually said and what he actually did in the mid-90s or something that was published, and we're going to look at that. So this is Time Magazine, April 6, 1996 issue, uh, The Search for Jesus, okay? And so for the last 20-plus years, there has been, uh, I would say, in the mainstream, within scholarship, there's been this historical criticism about, like, you know, can we actually trust the Gospels? Can we not trust the Gospels? That's been going on for, like, 200-plus years. But in the last 20-plus years, it's become, like, something that's, like, the common, you know, popular uh, mainstream people, just everyday people, have, have had access to these different books that have come out. I mean, maybe you've heard of some of the books. Like, the, just to kind of give you an example, The Da Vinci Code. Anybody ever heard of The Da Vinci Code before? It's a book. It's a you know, fiction, it's a work of fiction, but the Da Vinci Code is like a good example of how in our day and age there is this movement and there's these popular books that have been like put out to the mainstream people, like, you know, just everyday people. You can go to a bookstore, sometimes they're bestsellers. Uh, there's books out there called like Jesus Interrupted or Lost Christianities. Those books uh, that you go to a bookstore and they're like New York bestsellers, oftentimes uh, those books are presenting people in the last 20 plus years ideas that scholars have been debating for 200 years. Does that make sense? Uh, so I'm just going to kind of go through and see how all this began. Like how did we come as a world uh, to the point where people started to look at the Bible differently? Well, in the 18th century, uh, before the 18th century, here was the consensus. It was the typical belief was that the Gospels were and the inspired Word of God. All right? Uh, they were divinely inspired. They looked at the Gospels as being traditionally authored by the people that they uh, had their names attributed to them. Like, for example, maybe you did not know this, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not titled that. Did you know that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's, in other words, when we have the manuscripts of, like, the New Testament Gospels, they're not, hey, this is the Gospel according to Mark, or, hey, this is the Gospel according to John. They're anonymous. We, through church tradition have traditionally uh, believed that certain people wrote those Gospels, John or Mark or Luke or Matthew, because that's how they came down to us. And there's good reason to believe that those individuals that the Gospels are attributed to are the people that actually wrote those Gospels. But before the 18th century, the traditional authorship was the belief. Matthew wrote Matthew, okay? Matthew was a disciple. He was an eyewitness. 
He was one of the 12 that was walking around with Jesus. Then you have Mark, who was an understudy, an assistant of Peter. We know early on Mark uh, is a person that is a traveling companion with Paul and Barnabas, but there was kind of uh, some issues there. Maybe we've read about in in the book of Acts. And we see later in the history uh, of the New Testament as it unfolds that Mark is working with Peter. And so the tradition is that Mark wrote uh, Mark, and he got his information by being a companion, an assistant, an understudy of Peter. And so one of the traditional, and this is kind of going back to the traditional view, is that all of these Gospels have to be written by either an eyewitness of Jesus or a person who is a companion of someone who is an eyewitness of Jesus. So Mark, he wasn't a disciple of Jesus. I mean, he, he, he wasn't. Uh, but he becomes an associate with Peter as well as with Paul, individuals who were witnesses of the actual Jesus. Same thing with Luke. Luke is looked at as being the author of Luke in the traditional view. He's a traveling companion of, of, of Paul. We also know that in the first chapter of Luke, Luke opens up his gospel by saying, you know, all the different things that I have investigated uh, is what has resulted in this account. In other words, I'm writing these things to you, and I've searched these things out. I've went and talked to people, and I've went and I've had discussions, and I've went and I've looked and, and heard testimony, and I've compiled all of this stuff together. And then John is looked at, of course, as being a disciple of Jesus as well. So you've got two eyewitnesses, John and Matthew, and then you have Mark and Luke, who were not eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus, but they were companions to those individuals who were eyewitnesses. So with this traditional view, you have what you would call apostolic authority. Okay? The Gospels have apostle or apostolic authority behind them. Okay? Well, things all change in the Enlightenment period. After the 18th century and during the 18th century is when the Enlightenment happened. If you don't know what the Enlightenment is, the Enlightenment was this idea uh, that kind of swept across universities in Europe. Uh, and so here's what happened. You have the Renaissance that comes, and then in the Renaissance period, at the tail end of it, you have something called the Scientific Revolution. And during the Scientific Revolution, you had people like Galileo, you had people like Copernicus, and they were discovering, you know what, we can discover facts about the universe by using reason, by using the scientific method which they developed, which was, you know, you don't just assume things based upon tradition, but rather you uh, can discover things by, they developed a telescope, they looked at, you know, the, the, the heavenly bodies, they looked at the moon, they looked at the sun, uh, and they looked at, like, you know, what, you know, what's the center of the universe? Maybe you don't know this, but the traditional dogmatic belief for many, many years was that the earth was the center of the universe. People believed in what they called a geocentric universe. We know that that is not true. We have been able to demonstrate that that's not true, but the sun is the center of the universe, and everything revolves around the sun. But anyways, scientists came about, and they learned that, hey, we can learn truths about our universe by using reason by just observing things. Well, when that happened, social scientists came along, and they started saying, you know what? How about we apply those same principles that has been applied to science? Why don't we apply some of those same principles and apply them to the social sciences? Like, you know, we've just always taken it for granted that kings get to rule by divine right. Well, maybe if we use reason and if we use our thinking caps, maybe we can discover like the better way and the best way to maybe govern and have government. 
And that's where you have things like, you know, that's what the Enlightenment is, basically applying the scientific revolution principles to the idea of government. And that's where you have these ideas of natural-born rights and a lot of those ideas that we get in our own Declaration of Independence, in our own Constitution. Those are Enlightenment ideals. But on the flip side, one of the big parts of the Enlightenment is not trusting traditional dogma. In other words, not, tradition, not trusting just the traditional way that we've always believed in things. And so there became this like new attitude when it came to the Bible. So as they started applying that scientific mindset to the social sciences like government and stuff like that, they also started to apply that to like the way we look at religion, the way we look at you know, tradition, things like that. And so they started looking at the Gospels and saying, you know, the Gospels, they can't really be historically accurate because of one reason. Miracles don't happen. That was the belief. Miracles don't happen. Basically, it brought on a non-supernatural approach to reading the Bible. And so, as they start to reinterpret the Bible, they start saying, all that stuff in the Bible, the miracles, well, those don't happen. I mean, you, you know, rationally, you can't scientifically prove those happen. So they started to demythalize, I guess you would say, de- miracleize the New Testament. So they started to strip out all those things, basically, that the Gospels had to say about Jesus and about miracles happening. And they basically said those things can't be trusted. So the idea was that miracles violate the laws of nature. Laws of nature cannot be violated. Therefore, any rational person cannot believe in miracles. That was basically the idea. And so when you do this, you prematurely already determine the conclusion at the very start. If you start reading the Bible and you're, before you even begin, say, okay, I cannot accept anything that's miraculous or seems to be supernatural, then you've already come to the conclusion that you're not going to believe the things that the Bible has to say or present to you. So you've already decided before you even began. So in recent years, the focus shifted a little bit to what Jesus really said. Not just about what he did, but what he actually said. Uh, the question now became, how to sift the material, basically, to get to the real words of Jesus. Okay, so the attempt was this. Let's remove all the different things about Jesus that we think that he could not have said, and let's see we're, what we're left with. Okay? The best example of this is what's called the Jesus Seminar. Has anybody ever heard of the Jesus Seminar before? The Jesus Seminar is an organization... Um, that I don't know exactly what year, the 1980s, late 80s, and they published, I think, their work, uh, which was the, the five Gospels in the 1990s, early 1990s. But essentially what they did, thank you, sir, appreciate it. Essentially what they did was, is they came together and they said, okay, there are certain things about the Gospels, about the things that Jesus said that we cannot accept because we cannot historically validate that he could have said those things. And we're going to look at that. Okay? They concluded that 82% of the Gospels is inauthentic. Could not have happened. That's their reasoning. Okay? This is the way they decided to do this. They used a method, basically, of casting beads. Okay? They used a special method to determine which sayings of Jesus were authentic. Okay? They would... Basically, read through the Gospels, and 
anything that was very likely that Jesus actually said, they would use a red beef. And they would vote on the different sayings of Jesus. They would say, okay, this, what, Je what, what is in the Gospels here, we're going to vote with a red bead if they thought that Jesus actually said it. Then if it was a pink, would be things that they thought were doubtful, okay? That Jesus could have said it, but he probably didn't say it, okay? A gray bead, they would vote, meant that Jesus could not have said this, uh, but maybe it does reflect his thinking. Like, it's not his actual words that he would have used, but maybe it does reflect some of the thinking of Jesus. And, of course, a black bead would indicate something that Jesus Holy, there's no way that he could have said this. And so the results was reported in what's called the Five Gospels, the Search for the Authentic Words of Jesus, 1993. So this just kind of gives you like a background story of exactly what we're dealing with when it comes to like this critical scholarship against uh, Christianity and the words of Jesus. And let me just say this. This is not the consensus. The Jesus Seminar was not the consensus. There's many secular scholars that reject uh, the methods used by the Jesus Seminar. So don't let anyone ever tell you that that's not the case. Okay? The criteria used to find the real words of Jesus. I want to go through five of these. Or six, rather. Or seven. The first one is called multiple source attestation. Okay? This is where a saying is found in more than one place in the Gospels and it may be judged as authentic. In other words, if, and this is a historical way of evaluating a text, if there is a saying that's found in more than one spot, not by the same person, but by different people, you have multiple attestation, and that means that it is a historical earmarker. Okay? It's something that historians use to evaluate whether something's authentic or not. Secondly, Palestinian environment, a saying that presupposes first century Palestine for its background may be judged to be authentic. For example, if they're reading the Gospels and they come to a spot where they feel like, hey, this, what's being described is not Palestinian. In other words, the context of what Jesus was living in is Palestine. And if it doesn't jive with what you would typically find in Palestine, then it would be judged as probably inauthentic. The cool thing about the four Gospels is, and a lot of this has has to do with, uh, I think, modern scholarship, like people like N.T. Wright, if you've ever heard of him. The four Gospels, they have strong Palestinian environments. In other words, there's many Gospels that have been written, okay? There's people that are like, oh, the Gospel of Judas, or here's the Gospel of Thomas. Maybe you've heard of those things. The four Gospels, the canonical Gospels that we have in the New Testament, have pretty strong Palestinian environment language, which really, really is a strong indicator that they are first century Palestinian documents. The third thing is the Aramaic language. Okay? A saying that contains words that in Greek are awkward, but in Aramaic make better sense is likely to authenticate. Why is this? Because in Palestine, people, Jews, most likely spoke the language of Aramaic. We know that the language that we get our New Testament with is Greek, but the speaking language is Aramaic. And so if you have texts uh, and you're reading it, and, of course, we are mostly English-speaking people. We probably don't have a high level of Greek. Maybe you do, uh, or Hebrew. But when you read it and you say and you see that there are spots where this is strange, this, the Greek is really strained here, because, you know, languages are not perfect gloves. They don't fit each other perfectly. There's things that are always lost when you go from one language to another. 
And so when you have things in the Greek that are very awkward but are better Aramaic, then that's a great indication that, hey, this is a, this is a proof that this is, uh, can be historically validated. Uh, number four, I'm going to kind of pick up the pace. Dissimilarity. All right, this is a saying that differs from what first century Judaism and or the early church believed. And this is looked at as being likely uh, authentic. The criteria of embarrassment, a saying that was embarrassing for the church, would hardly have been made up by them. So it must go back to Jesus. For example, Jesus healing blind man with spit. Mark the 8th chapter, verse 22 through 26. That's something that's kind of would be considered strange and bizarre. And so just to kind of back up, the idea is this. Just kind of let, let you kind of get a sense. The idea among a lot of skeptics is that we have a New Testament. And that New Testament is not the result of the actual events of Jesus, but rather it's the result of a guy named Jesus living, maybe doing some preaching, and then there being like 50, 60, 100 years that pass, and there being like legends developed around it. Make sense? So in other words, there's a passing of time from when the New Testament was written, from when the actual events took place, and there are people who are claiming that, hey, those things that you hear about Jesus, those are like the church like throwing ideas back onto it. Like, in other words, the belief is, is that there's this guy named Jesus, he lived his life, and then, of course, as time went on, the church started to apply these legends, it started to come up with these myths about him and applied it back onto the historical Jesus. I'm going to try to give you guys some really strong information today that really discredits that idea. And then, of course, the last one is the consensus of scholars. This is, a, uh, to me, kind of a, a silly uh, a criteria used, but a saying that is judged to be authentic when most New Testament scholars agree it, it goes back to Jesus. Okay? And then multiple forms statement. And this is a saying is more likely authentic when it, is found in more than one form in the Gospels. Kingdom of God arriving, which is found in parables, miracles, sayings. In other words, the idea of the kingdom of God, when it's used in multiple places, those are earmarks of historicity. Okay? All right, so let's move to the, the second part, which is the main part. I want to give you guys some information that I think is important of just kind of why the environment is the way it is when it comes to historians and the search for Jesus and what they claim and then give you four facts, four solid very important facts about the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. I do want to point out my source which I, I, I pointed out at the very beginning, William Lane Craig, maybe you've heard of him before, but he is a Christian uh, apologist slash philosopher he has a website called reasonablefaith.org uh, he has many great sources he has actually engaged in conversations with all different kinds of people, to Richard Dawkins, to Christopher Hitchens, to Bart Ehrman. Uh, maybe you've heard those names, maybe you haven't. Uh, but he is a, a really good author and has a lot of good stuff. So I really recommend you check him out uh, sometime that has a lot of good information uh, in regards to you know, how to defend your faith, how to defend not just like from a biblical point of view you know, to other Christians, but how to defend your faith to like people who don't even believe the Bible or accept the Bible or believe in God for that matter. So the first fact, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you four facts today. The first fact is this. After his crucifixion, Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. And so there's a, several reasons why this is very significant, okay? Uh, this is significant because it establishes a known burial site. It establishes a known burial site. 
Now, in the first century, when Jesus was killed and he was put in a tomb, this fact right here shows us something that's really important because what has been the big question for many, many people? Okay? Where's Jesus' body? Now, we know the answer to that. But people who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they've never been able to produce a body. And there's good reason for this. Okay? And we're going to get into that. Jesus' tomb, it was empty. Okay? But why this is significant is because it establishes among both Christians as well as Jews that there was a tomb that, was, that Jesus was put in. Okay? It wasn't something just from, you know, that, that, that is a legend that's applied back onto him, but it's something that we actually can know. You could only proclaim an empty tomb if there really was an empty tomb. During the days of Jesus, if he was crucified, like the New Testament tells us he was, which is great historical records for that to be the case, there was a lot of people that would have loved to demonstrate to the people uh, specifically to Christians, people who believed in this Jesus, that no, he's dead and he's in a tomb. Okay? Uh, but they could not do that. He, they could not do this. Alright? So what is the evidence for establishing this as fact? And that's a kind of a question. There is actually something that a lot of people probably have never heard of before, but it's extremely important to Christianity, especially to the resurrection. And that is 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3-5. You might not know this, but this right here is most likely not Paul's actual words himself. And what I mean by that, did he write this? Yes. Did he author these statements? Probably not. And the fact that he didn't author these statements actually attests to the resurrection. This is what it says. It says, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Now, you might be asking the question, what makes this statement so important? Okay? Well, first of all, number one, it's idea of received and delivered. These two different terms in here gives us the idea. This is, this is the typical rabbinical terms for conveying information. In other words, Paul is not saying, hey, I told you these things. No, he's saying, hey, remember what I delivered to you? This sentiment right here. Now, this passage is very non-Pauline. It's a stylized passage. It's a four-line formula with non-Pauline characteristics. A lot of historians believe that this statement, the reason I was saying that Paul probably did not author this statement, he wrote it but didn't author it, was because they think that this was an early Christian creed an early Christian creed going back to within six years of the resurrection. Now, you might ask, why is that so important? So many skeptics like to promote the idea that this idea that Jesus rose from the dead was an invention that came years after the death of Jesus. If this is established, that this is an early creed within six years of Jesus actually dying, it dismisses that idea, that idea that, that the resurrection is some sort of like myth that was made up by the church later on, 60, 70, 80 years later. Scholar believe, scholars believe this phrase is from the old tradition. I'll explain what that means. Jerusalem, maybe 36 CE. 
Uh, I'll explain to that in a, in a few minutes what the old tradition is. Uh, that's basically whenever I was saying that this comes from maybe an old uh, creed, a Christian creed that kind of developed within five years of the resurrection. Uh, that's what we mean by an old tradition. It's not something that Paul just authored on the spur of the moment when he was writing to the Corinthians. So within five years of the resurrection, it eliminates the idea of later invention arguments. And so those things are really important. Uh, continuing on on point uh, one, burial story from old source material. Let me explain what this means. Okay, If you look at Matt Mark, Mark is looked at today. It hasn't always been like this, but today Mark is looked at as being the earliest gospel written. Uh, they call it Mark in priority. That's kind of the technical term they use. For years, Mark was not looked at, was not studied real closely uh, by theologians. They kind of neglected Mark. They looked at Matthew and Luke, the bigger Gospels, but have in recent years come to realize, no, it looks like maybe Mark was written first, and then you have Luke and you have Matthew that used Mark to write a lot of their Gospels. Well, in Mark, we see that Mark is this Gospel that's written with all these different snapshots of Jesus, this different event, this story. Mark doesn't have a, a birth narrative. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of the things that Matthew and Luke have. But when we get to the passion, when we get to like the death and the burial and all that stuff of Jesus, all of a sudden Mark kind of turns into this like real smooth narrative. And this has actually made and convinced a lot of scholars and a lot of historians to believe that Mark is using some sort of tradition, some sort of old tradition, whether it be a written tradition or old tradition that was going around. In other words, this doesn't seem to be completely Markan. Mark wrote it, but he's recording a story that was circulating. You know, maybe, in other words, the, the passion of Jesus, the part about him dying, the part about him being crucified and resurrecting, being such a big part of the Christian message, that there probably was an oral tradition that was very, very memorized among a lot of people, and he probably was using that. We kind of find the same thing with Mac, Matthew as well as Luke. And to some extent, even John, there's this narrative where they kind of, I mean, there might be some disagreement on certain things that are not, that are minute and don't have nothing to do with theology. But when it comes to basically the consistency of Jesus being arrested, him, him being tried, him being crucified, and him raising from the dead, that's a unanimous agreement across all the four Gospels. So if that's the case, if this burial story is from the old source material, we have Mark that was written first. And if he wrote first, obviously if he's borrowing from old source material, whether it be an oral tradition or be some sort of written tradition out there, then we know that this old source material that he's using is even, even older than that, uh, which goes a long ways, uh, basically, uh, arguing against the idea of later invention. Okay? Mark, first gospel written, passion story, even earlier, again, argues against it being a later invention or legend. All right, Joseph of Arimathea. This is an unlikely invention. And I will say that when it comes to my notes, guys, my notes are a little bit different, my PowerPoint. So if I'm getting a little mixed up here, I want to apologize. So Joseph of Arimathea, all right? Uh, this is something that we have to think about, and, and we have to really kind of put our, to, to understand why this is a big deal. Uh, but Joseph of Arimathea, what is he? He's basically a member of the Jewish court. He's a member of the very Jewish court that just crucified Jesus. And so when we start thinking about like later inventions, like Paul, or not Paul, but the church inventing things later on, they probably wouldn't invent things 
like this. Like if a guy by the name of Joseph Arimathea, part of the Jewish court that condemned Jesus, a lot of resentment towards the Pharisees, a lot of resentment towards the Sanhedrin, you probably wouldn't select an individual that's from this group of people to be the person who offers up a tomb for Jesus to be laid in. So it's very unlikely candidate to be the heroic champion of Jesus' tomb. And that's one of the reasons that people point to as probably not something that would be invented. Okay? No other competing burial stories exist. And that's true. We don't find any first century uh, alternative accounts about what happened to Jesus after he was taken off the cross. Later we do. The Gnostic Gospels that come about and that we've discovered to be written in like the 300s, you know, in you know, the 4th century and beyond, there's some really bizarre stuff. But when it comes to the 1st century, we don't have any of these competing burial stories. We have this one consistent story that Jesus died and he was put into a tomb, especially among these Gospels here. Alright, so if fictitious, why no trace of other stories? All sources unanimous, not until much later, new stories actually arise that become competing burial stories, but they're not, uh, they're not Palestinian, they're, they're very strange, they're obviously not from the same era in which the New Testament events took place. Okay? This is a quote from uh, the late H.D. Robinson, Cambridge University. Speaking on the burial of Jesus in the tomb, he says this, one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. Okay? When he's talking about the burial of Jesus in the tomb. All right? All right, going on to fact number two. On the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Okay? And of course, this isn't, you know, contradicting our belief that Jesus rose on a Saturday. Uh, but we know that the Gospels say that he was discovered on the first day of the week. Okay? So on the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Okay? Uh, evidence, this empty tomb story is also part of that old passion story. In other words, that passion story that, seemed, that Mark seemed to be using, it's also this empty tomb part is also part of that. Uh, the old tradition that's cited by Paul testifies to an empty tomb. And then number three, it lacks signs of embellishment. For example, in the second century, I was just mentioning the Gnostic Gospels. There are some really bizarre things. Okay? There was one Gnostic Gospel or a prophet apocryphal gospel where Jesus is seen coming out of the tomb and he's being followed by a talking cross. Uh, so there's really bizarre things and it really lacks the signs of what we would find in the later embellishment gospels that really aren't gospels but they're just writings about Jesus and about different things. Uh, women testimony not considered reliable. Now women, I hate to say this, but this is actually a really good talking point when it comes to uh, the, the, the Gospels and the reliability. Let me kind of give you an example of this. Women's testimony in the first century was significantly discounted. I mean, Josephus talks about uh, women's testimony was so worthless that it could not even be admitted into a Jewish court of law. And so, if you're going to invent these things, if you're going to basically just come up with this idea, this story about this guy Jesus, and let's get witnesses, and let's write down, and and show that Jesus, he, he rose from the dead. If you're going to do that, you're not going to probably use women as the first individuals to see Jesus after 
he had been risen from the dead. So a legend uh, probably would have made it where Jesus was first found by one of the apostles, by one of the male apostles. Fact number three, on multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. Interestingly enough, this is something that scholars agree with. Believe it or not, they actually think that, that the apostles were telling the truth. They experienced something. They don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, but they believe that they experienced something. Okay? So you look at the list of eyewitnesses. All right? The list of eyewitnesses, you have multiple independent attestations. Okay? You have 1 Corinthians 15, 5, verses 5 through 7, all the apostles, James, the 500 brethren, and Paul, all being claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. Okay, uh, this is what the passage says. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. I mean, think about this. Paul is writing to people that could go and say, Paul, you said this, and we went and talked to all these people. No one says that you that even know what you're talking about. You're writing at a time where you're saying, hey, this happened, these people saw him. Oh, yeah, go, go talk to him right now. People could go check these things. I mean, that's not something that you would do if you were just bold-faced lying. You might lie, but not say, well, you know, 500 people saw them, but those 500 people are all dead now. You can't talk to them. Okay? You are not going to say these things. All right? After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Okay? You have the appearances to Peter and Luke. You have the appearances to the twelve in Luke and John. You have appearances in Galilee, because we know that there are these random appearances in Galilee of Jesus. By Mark, Matthew, and John, you have appearances to the women in Matthew and John. So you have multiple uh, independent attestations. What that means is you have multiple accounts saying different people saw Jesus and they're different sources. Not like just one person writing all of these things and claiming these things. So... That's what you have when you look at the multiple occasions and under various circumstances on our fact number three. It also has the earmarks of historicity. Okay? For example, James. I did a series on James. James was the half-brother, according to tradition, of Jesus. Okay? During the life of James, it is said, according to the Gospels, that he was not a follower of Jesus. He was a skeptic like the rest of his family. But what we see after Jesus rose from the dead we see James become a very important figure of Christianity. In fact, he's the head of the Jerusalem church. Uh, so, with that, why would they generate a fictitious story like this if James really didn't indeed uh, become, I mean, why would James become like, you know, a leading figure uh, if he did not, if he was not a part of this? Okay? And our last fact for the day, the original disciples believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition predisposition to the contrary. I mean, think about what the disciples were going through, okay? No Jew, no expectation in Jewish history, okay, during this time, none of them believed in this idea that there was going to be a Messiah that would come and die and, 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 and be buried and rise from the dead. That was not an idea within Judaism in the first century. It just wasn't there. So why would they come up with this idea? I mean, the fact that they just came out of this, come up with this idea out of the blue. And I know that people have gone around and talked about, talking about skeptics, and tried to say that, well, there was these ideas of a dying and raising Savior 
Well, that might be true, but not in this point in time right here. I mean, that wasn't an idea that was floating around first century Palestine that we know of in any shape or form. They were relying, I mean, and they were very, very Jewish. I mean, even after Jesus rose from the dead, one of the first things they asked him right before he ascended was that, Jesus, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom now? They were still believing the typical Jewish way of thinking about things. That is, a physical, political ruler coming in, driving out the Roman Empire, and restoring the glory back to Israel. That's what they still believed in. Uh, because that's what they grew up with. That was a typical Jewish way of believing what the Messiah was supposed to do. Dying when applied, they were wrong. Pharisees, right? I mean, think about this. I mean, uh, they saw him die. And uh, this is something that, you know, the natural response of the disciples would have been to that, you know, Jesus, he must have been wrong. I mean, he died. He saw it happen. I mean, in, honest, in, in all honesty, when we look at that, there is a despair on the disciples. I mean, they were sad for their, uh, for their leader, for their Messiah, who they believed to be the Messiah that just died in front of them in a horrible way. Uh, but they were also probably thinking to themselves, man, these last three, three plus years, we've been hookling. You know, this, this is, you know, we, we, Jesus was wrong. That's probably what they were thinking, at least some of them, even though Jesus did kind of indicate to them, hey, these things are going to happen. Uh, they still, it didn't quite sink in. Uh, and then, of course, Jewish belief in the afterlife precluded rise from dead to glory and immortality before general resurrection. So all of these things right here, okay, in other words, they're going against the grain. I mean, they're proclaiming things if they were not true. These are strange things for people like, you know, Peter and, and John and James to be proclaiming. This is not the typical way that Jews would see things and interpret things. And they certainly probably would not invent these things. And if we can establish that fact, that this idea that Jesus, his tomb was empty and that he rose from the dead it was an early tradition. It was something that was proclaimed early on. It basically does away with the idea of later mythalizing of the gospels. Okay? That is so prevalent. All right? So, those four facts... Those four facts, the interesting thing about those four facts is this. Most scholars, historians actually accept them. They say, you know what, the, 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 there, there was an empty tomb. Something happened to the, the body of Jesus. Uh, we don't know what that is. It's not that he rose from the dead because, like we already talked about, the way they approach looking at the text precludes them from being able to accept that Jesus actually rose from the dead. There has to be another explanation. There has to be another explanation. So here are some potential theories. Most of these, and I have to admit, most scholars have abandoned these theories because they've been so disproven. But one of them is the fraud theory. This book, I forgot what year it came out. It's called The Passover Plot. And this book basically said this. Jesus was a master planner. He planned out every step of the way, every part of his life. He looked in the Old Testament. He became such an expert in the Old Testament. And he made sure that everything he did like, would like show to like fulfill some passage. And not only that, not only that, he arranged his own death, his own burial, and the removal of his own body. The disciples stole the body of Jesus, lied about the appearances. Not many, if anyone, holds this theory. I have to just kind of point that out. But it contradicts the fact about the disciples' willingness to die for their faith. I mean, who willingly dies for a lie? 
mean, there's probably someone out there. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it's not very rational to believe that all these people would become martyrs for something that they just made up. And that they really, the only thing that can really account for why they were doing what they were doing was because they witnessed something, something very miraculous, something that drove them and gave them hope that, you know what, <laughs> the things I've seen, you can do whatever you want. I know the truth. Okay? Hallucinations. Disciples all hallucinated. They were so grief-stricken that they just they wanted to see Jesus again, and they all started to see Jesus. Now, that theory might have some water, but not when you talk about three people who are hallucinating at the same time, four, twelve. We got 500 people that's claimed in the New Testament to all hallucinate. Hallucination is something you perceive with the natural senses that are not there. Could all the disciples, including Paul, just all experience hallucinations? Again, no one really accepts this as a theory. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is because these are theories that have been held on to in history. But today, they've been kind of rejected as not plausible explanations. Three, apparent death uh, theory. This is the idea that Jesus, he wasn't dead. He stood up on the cross. He was badly beaten, but he wasn't dead. He was maybe like just holding on to a thread, you know, maybe a, a very, very light heartbeat, but somehow he was revived put into the tomb, he really wasn't dead, he was given medical assistance, and he was able to walk out of the tomb on his own, leave to go somewhere, you know, that's why people saw Jesus again, because he never really died, and maybe the, the ascension part was just kind of made up, okay? Chances of someone surviving crucifixion was extremely low. The Roman Empire wasn't the Roman Empire, because they made mistakes when they wanted to kill someone. They were experts at killing people. Okay, and I don't mean that you know, too comical, but it's the truth. Okay? When they went to execute people, they did not mess up. Uh, they, were, they were people that got the job done. No known scholar today holds this theory. Again, it has been postulated out there. The fourth theory. Simply put, Jesus rose from the dead as reported in the story. Okay? Of course, this is the theory that I hold. It's the theory that probably most of you hold. The reason I gave this to you guys was just to get you guys, your mind thinking and uh, to, to maybe give you some information about, you know, what it is that can actually be historically validated as true. I have a little quote to end with. It's from N.T. Wright. That is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus, again, Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. So this concludes. Uh, if anyone has any questions, something you want to ask, maybe I was confusing on something. Which is probably the whole thing. You want me to do the whole thing over again? I'm just kidding. No questions? And I know this is a lot of information to throw at you in 45, 50 minutes. And, uh, but if you do come, have some questions, I'll try to answer them. You know, in the process of time, you look at this, you're like, you know, I was kind of confused on that. Feel free to come to me and ask me. I'll do my best to try to answer your questions. Thank you, guys.